0: Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Lou Rosenfeld, publisher and founder at Rosenfeld Media. In this episode, we talked about what information architecture is and how it led to the formation of Rosenfeld Media, how the UX design space is evolving, and the importance of understanding your customers' needs when building out your product's information architecture. We also discussed Lou's plans to introduce memberships and subscriptions at Rosenfeld Media, and how introducing attendee cohorts at their conferences increased retention and engagement of their community. and here's today's episode. Hey, Lou, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks, Andrew. I'm really glad to be here. It's great. to have. For the listeners, Lou is the publisher and founder of Rosenfeld Media, connecting people interested in designing better user experiences through books they publish, events they organize, and communities they build. Now, Lou started out his, his career as an information architect and then founded a series of other companies before getting started with Rosenfeld Media over 16 years ago. So, My first question for you, Lou, is what is information architecture and how did it lead you to Rosenfeld Media?
1: Good Lord. We could spend a lot of time on that, but I'll try to be brief. Information architecture is the uh, art and science of organizing and structuring and labeling information so that people can actually find and manage it. And if any of you were old enough to remember an O'Reilly book with a polar bear on the that was the one I co-authored, Information Architecture for the Web and Beyond. It's now in its fourth edition. And most people know me as the the guy who wrote that book, but it's funny, it's been a long time since I wrote that. Since then, I moved into a very related area, user experience design, which is really an umbrella for areas like information architecture and usability and content strategy and interaction design. And it's a really interesting field that synthesizes, as I said, other areas, brings people together, really appealed to me. And I decided really as a, almost as a hobby to start a company that published books for the UX community. And that's Rosenfeld Media, started that 16 years ago. And I did that primarily because I felt like there wasn't enough uh, attention being paid to UX. And uh, my hero, one of my heroes is Tim O'Reilly, who obviously founded O'Reilly Media. And I still remember he told me, oh, you're like a lot of other publishers. You're a frustrated author. And when you see that there's ways to do things differently, you want to do, you want to try some new innovative ways out. That's what we did. Started the publishing company, branched into events after a few years, like a lot of publishers do, also offer training, all about user experience design, which itself keeps morphing and transforming and broadening.
2: Absolutely. It sounds like it was a good hobby uh, to take after 16 years.
1: It's a hobby that's keeping me pretty busy
2: these days. I can imagine. The thing that I was just going to ask you then as well, like obviously being 16 years ago, there wasn't really good content out there when it came to UX and UX design. Today, there's like uh, an abundance, I would say, of content out there. Like, In your opinion, what have been like maybe one or two big shifts or changes that you've seen in the UX design space? And maybe that could be something to do with the understanding or how the, the market itself is? First of
1: all, the field has grown. Old guys like me tended to be folks who were comfortable with helping pioneer new areas and we were good with uncertainty and used to being oddballs. And many of us had deep experience in other fields, anything ranging from theater to, in my case, library science to graphic design. And we all came together under that umbrella of UX. and. As the field took hold and, and really started to, to grow, it became very democratized and to some degree commoditized. A lot of people entering UX today, unlike in, in, back in my day, are able to get a degree or go to a boot camp and just for UX or some related area. And so you have a different level of knowledge. It's less sort of school of hard knocks and more programmed, curriculum-based. But those people also, they may have really great knowledge, but they also don't necessarily have deep knowledge like many of us did. So that's one interesting trend. Another one is that as you look at UX's evolution, it's been constantly panning back. So I think a lot of people start in... um, like what we might call now UX, UI, where they're very focused on the the front end and at a level of micro interactions at the degree of designing things like radio buttons and pull-down menus, which is important. But over time, the field and actually many individuals in their career paths pull back to broader and broader perspectives. So you start seeing areas that are like beneath the tip of the iceberg, not always so obvious and visible, like... For example, information architecture, you can't really see it, but it's important or service design. And it's panning back even further to systems thinking. So how do you design systems, maybe ecosystems, maybe something else, or how can you design within a broad system that you may have limited control over and that may span many physical and digital and social media at one time so that's a really hard ask and not so easy for people to start there in their careers but that's where we're often heading
2: and it's evolving yeah i definitely see that as a trend as well like becoming a lot more sophisticated in the way we view ux uh, and it's less about that ab test with the blue and red button now and it's more about like how do we start thinking about like from first principles what are we trying to achieve how can we help our users help customers
1: and what are the consequences
2: Yes, on the other end, because we've seen some really bad consequences as the nature of badly designed software or manipulative software, if we want to call it that way. The the other thing you mentioned that's interesting as well, and I've noticed this as a trend on the show, is that like roles like UX research or customer success, or even like user researchers, to a degree most of the people I've spoken to, their backgrounds aren't like I went to study UX research or user research. It's always they come from like vastly different backgrounds and then they somehow stumbled into it and like, oh, this is something that I could be interested in. It's more on like the behavioral sides. And you mentioned some of it coming from the arts and things like this. this is a common thing I've actually heard, which is quite interesting. Yeah. And information architecture on that note as well. I think this is one of the things that, like you say, it's Sometimes maybe an afterthought, but thinking through it with your product from the very start can really save you a lot of pain further down the line. And uh, in the, like the context of churn and retention, I think like one of the main things is like being able to allow your users to grasp and understand your products like in seconds and be able to navigate around and be able to understand how to use the product and how the information is going to be working in there. If you're getting started out with a product and like you wanted to think a little about your information architecture, how do you go about thinking through the initial uh, work that you want to do? Initial research is there any sort of format that you followed in the past going into a new project or into a new product when it comes to information architecture.
1: Different different information architects have different approaches. There's no one size fits all. For me, I like to really focus in on information needs. So there's this interesting relationship that if you could. Let's say, get a list of information needs. Let's say, when people search your website, as an example, the search queries, if you were to figure out the frequency of the search queries and plot them on a distribution chart, what you would find is the Pareto principle very clearly illustrated. The distribution looks like a hockey stick. And what you find is that. A handful of, in this case, search queries, but it could be any type of way of expressing an information need. Uh, The the most common handful accounts for a huge, surprisingly huge portion of all the traffic. So let's say if a site gets 30,000 searches, the top 10 might account for 20% of all the traffic out of those 30,000. And it, as you move down the distribution curve and you move more to the esoteric needs that people have, one-offs and so forth, those you can afford to maybe ignore or treat differently. But if your site does not really address well those really common information, needs the few things that everyone really needs to be able to do, then you're going to have a failure. And that's where your information architecture, in my mind, should start. Determining what those needs are, figuring out which ones are the most common and making sure that you're nailing them.
2: Making it really simple. I like that notion as well of looking at search as an example. And as you mentioned, like Perita's principle, like the 80-20 uh, rule coming to play into that. The next thing I'm interested in as well, as you started talking a little bit about your journey, like starting out uh, writing books, publishing books, and then going into events uh, and, building community now and we touched on this a little bit before the show that uh, like the next evolution now that you're looking into is actually memberships or subscriptions as part of rosenthal media and maybe let's start off like what's like got you thinking in this direction
1: actually been thinking about it for many years and why now is because we're finally in a position both in terms of volume of content audience size exposure and internal resources that we can actually do this. When you bootstrap a company as a hobby from the very get-go and you never have funding and you're constantly just trying to keep it going and see where it goes, it's hard to take on projects like that. But fortunately we're at that point now. And we have, as I said, so much content that's coming together now and a lot of goodwill, a lot of exposure and some specific audiences that I would like to serve. So for example, if we had the membership approach that I envision, I would like to make it uh, free or nearly free for students. I'll never forget, in the '80s, when I was a college student at the University of Michigan, Apple made sure to, to make sure that we had access to their hardware. It locked us in. I'm still an Apple user today. I'm talking to you from a, a MacBook Air. And uh, I know there's a lot of students out there that are trying to learn about user experience design. I'd love for them to know about our content through a membership system.
2: I think that's an interesting point. And I think a lot of companies offer this uh, free for students or free for education. And the knock-on effects like, compound over time. It's crazy because, one, like, you're giving your product or service to students while they're learning to study. So as they're going to work into the uh, workforce and start working, they already have a concept of this product or the service uh, going into it. So if they're going to try and bring in a product, they're going to be thinking about that product or service and they have the experience. And then slowly over time, this mass audience as they're growing into certain roles to to push and promote. And as you mentioned, in your case, the, the MacBook is still uh, your number one device. I think it's a very powerful way to like for use acquisition without an indirect way for to power.
1: There's actually uh, another side to it as well. And I, I don't mean to be negative, but let's face it. Students are not used to paying for content. Even when I was a student in grad school, I, I still remember faculty giving us reading that from books that they simply made copies of themselves made course packs to help us avoid buying books. And as a publisher that, that makes me sad and i even though our books are pretty reasonably priced there is a mentality in academia that you don't pay for content and rather than fighting that i want to go with it because eventually those people are going to be professionals and they'll have budgets and and then hopefully some good number of them will remember us
2: absolutely okay so now so you're thinking through a little bit in that direction how do you think this is going to change like your focus as a business, have you got any ideas behind that? So you obviously have the different pillars that you, you work on and operates. Like how do you envision moving more towards like a membership subscription model, changing the business?
1: So in my mind, a, a membership model is going to require three things. One is content and we're doing great there. Two is engagement. People should engage over the content. Let's talk a little bit about that in a moment. And three. You need to have some sort of uh, glue to connect all those things, which I would describe as an information architecture. So that, that when you have content coming from different silos, here's one conference's content, here's another book's content, those need at some point to be joined in ways, to be integrated in ways, to add value that create sums greater than the part. I may be a member who wants to Read a book, but I may be a member interested in a certain topic that's a through line through some conference content, some books and their content, some training. That is an interesting challenge that is not surprising that an information architect would be considering. The you know, but we got to start somewhere. And so the thing that is really changing for us already, it's really less about membership changing the business as much as membership responding to the businesses changing, is this. We're, we're talking in November of 2021. Back in March of 2020, we struggled because we had a brand-new conference, sold out five weeks in advance. Suddenly, we had a virtualizer. And we had some experience with virtual conferences, but this was really daunting and stressful. And we did a very good job, but we knew instinctively that content, digital content delivered through things like Zoom or even asynchronously accessed content is just not that interesting or compelling because there's so much out there that's free that it competes with. We want to be able to sell it. We were already working on a membership system. We had a problem. And the, the live conferences were problematic. You don't want to sit for three days, staring at Zoom while people drone on. So what we started doing in June of last year is what we call attendee cohorts. Attendee cohorts are small groups of around 10 randomly assigned attendees at our conferences who have the, the aid of two volunteer facilitators. They meet just before the conference starts in Zoom, to get to know each other and to talk about their shared learning goals for the conference. They then check in each day on zoom and have a a wrap up at the end on zoom. And during the conference, they are together in a private Slack channel. And our uh, facilitators also often make use of uh, canvases to help bring the experience together and the ideas together from their cohort, things like mural neuro and it has been amazing. This is free to our attendees, it's first come first serve, but they are finding that the experience is at least on par if not superior to an in-person conference when it comes to both networking and learning. And especially for junior people, for introverts, people who are not comfortable in the in-person setting. And you're, if you go to an in-person conference, you might run into someone While you're waiting to pick up a croissant at breakfast, you may never see them again. You may not get their contact information. Here, you get some of that serendipity, but then you're together and you find each other. You get to know each other. We broker that. And people ultimately often continue talking long after the conference is over in these Slack channels. The model has been so compelling that we are now going to be establishing it for all of our lines of business. And not just tying it to a a conference, which is a short term convening of people for a few days, but to our communities, which meet year round. It's the perfect model for working groups, for birds of feather meetings. It's the sort of thing we can tie to books through book clubs. It's the sort of thing we could tie to training in terms of how students convene for the training that we sell. We even can use it internally because our authors work in cohorts, they convene their own cohorts of advisors, our, our speakers prep in cohort, our curation teams working in cohorts. So we have this nice, simple hunk of technical infrastructure that we manage through our membership system. And it's not that hard, but it is what is going to make the membership system compelling that people can interact over the common conversation piece of a piece of content, whether it's conference content, book content, training content, community content, you name it.
2: Yeah. I I definitely see that uh, working because I've experienced that in a couple of different areas in the past. And I've seen how effective it is in a previous startup, we went through an accelerator program And what they had was they used to call it, I think was brain trust sessions, where because there was other 10 people in the cohort with you, you would break up into individual roles and you would have a weekly session where you discuss your challenges. What are the pain points you've been having? What are you going through at this point in time? And the shared learnings you got out of there was like unbelievable from it. So much so that I actually even at some point decided to do something like this as a startup, as an idea. I put together a website called like braintrust.fm. I'm not even sure if it's still up there. And I was just doing a bit of like pricing and packaging testing and seeing like demand for it. And the problem that I found was that like, you had this notion that mostly like the senior people didn't want it because they were already doing it. And the junior people really, really wanted it, but they couldn't get access to like maybe more senior people that they actually learning from. But I think in your case, it's totally different because you already have one, like an amazing network an amazing community. from it. you have amazing content behind everything. And that's what sort of sets the anchor points for discussion. And so I definitely see that being something like super, super powerful and like a big value add to the content, because a lot of times you can read a book, you can go to conference, but it's actually the discussion that you have that like triggers new thoughts and new ideas. And so I love that.
1: Well, just to, just to add to that, you mentioned community and that is critical. So I, I mentioned that the cohorts, at least that we've done so far are facilitated. And I don't yeah. know that it will work unless you're facilitated. So let's not leave that out. It's not so simple. Yeah, uh, There's no facilitators, but we've been able to draw on our communities for facilitators. So our facilitators get a, a, a free ticket to the conference. They love the experience so much. They invest quite a bit. They are running the program now. I, mm-hmm. the people who run the facilitators, the, facilitate, the facilitators and do the training are volunteers. And they are often holdovers. We do four conferences a year. They're like at least half have done it once before and wanted to come back, even if the conference is not that Mm -hmm. relevant to them. The communities are fantastic because if you invest in them, they also give, they are they enable people to build their skills in a way that's gradual. So the people who are facilitating uh, this year Next year, they might be serving in a a more specialized role as a, let's say, a research analyst for our conference research, the research we do for programming. Or we now have this new role of community librarian for assembling all the resources that communities discussing and compiling those resources. Or eventually our paid curators, each of our communities and conferences is is run by a paid curation team of subject matter experts. But we're basically able to build almost like a maturity model for people to be involved in communities this way. And it's very cost effective and it's very win-win all around. And I don't know if we could run a community of any sort behind a membership wall if we didn't think really seriously about enabling people to own a piece of it in this way.
2: Yeah, content is not enough. And I think that thing that you said as well, like the facilitator side of things, I even think back to this podcast, actually, is that the first four or five guests I think I had on the show actually came from one of these groups that I'd organized together where I was a facilitator. And I put in the effort because I got so much out of those sessions. If I hadn't done that effort, probably would have dismantled and fallen apart, which it didn't in the end when I stopped doing anything about it. But I think they're like, the value that you get back from these sort of groups and cohorts. And then on top of that, you add on all the the products and services that you have as a whole. You can see that being something super, super uh, impactful. You mentioned engagement. I think obviously this is one part of it that uh, really involves engagement. Are there any other areas that you're thinking about, like how to keep the membership engaged and the members?
1: That's a really good question. And cohorts are only one model. And uh, I, I feel like mentoring is probably another program that we could consider. I feel the idea of building libraries of resources, not just that we create, but that come from the the broad world of content that that is interesting to each of our communities is also really interesting. And we're getting a lot of traction there right now. The problem we have with any of these things is that we've opted to not go with a commercial platform for conference for virtual conferences or for community management or for really any kind of one size fits all application or platform for any of these use cases. What we've decided to do is basically build our own platform, which is WordPress five and zoom and Slack and mural and things like that. And it's not bad because you can actually design it the way you want it to, you can design in ways that respond to your customers, but you're constrained by your, your dev cycles. That bandwidth issue is a problem for a lot of organizations, especially for a really small one like us. So now what we have to do is we just realize hire a full-time developer and, and keep investing in the platform. The human platform, the human infrastructure is another thing that we have to invest in. And we have a role that we had someone in it a little earlier this year. And now we're going to be filling this role again of community manager. We are seeing that role again, not as something that is just about being like someone to get people talking and excited, but to actually be looking for people to step up into these more specialized, more engaged roles librarian, research analyst, facilitator, whatever it might be, and to support our curators. And finally, to really be looking at what each community wants. We can come up with all kinds of ideas for uh, creating membership systems that are strong in retention, but ultimately it has to come from the people who are there and asking them and doing the, the user research that we all preach in my field that we should do. So that role of community managers can be instrumental in in making sure we're doing the research like we should.
2: Yeah. How much dog feeding do you do as well? Like how much user research are you doing as an organization?
1: A lot. A lot of it comes down to the research that we do for our conference program development. So our conferences tend to be in areas that are fairly new communities of practice. And we actually do substantial research every year for each program that we develop. And that has a lot of benefits. The obvious benefits is we develop a really strong program. But when you're in a new area, one of the real challenges is is defining it. So as an example, the newest conference that we're launching, which is about a month from now, is called Civic Design. There are people who are civic designers, but it's not like a common term yet. There are people who use adjacent terms like civic tech and uh, service design and so forth. Yet there's this awareness that there's this new thing called civic design that we need to spend time really investing in understanding. And the idea of developing a program for a conference that is when you're doing research to support that program is that you're doing an exercise that's definitional. So a good... Definition of civic design in 2021 will be our conference program. And it will be interesting to compare it to our program in 2022. So our communities know that they know that we are seriously curating and defining the areas we work in, that we're doing the research that we should do, and that they are part of it. We are researching with them and often involving them. So in effect, They are invested in what we are creating. They are stakeholders, if there ever was. And that helps retain people. So it it really is, I don't know enough about common membership models, but I know enough that there's probably a lot of talking the talk, but not enough walking the walk. And I think a really good way to be taken seriously is to involve the community
2: Yeah. And I think you're in a lucky position when it comes to research that like UX designers, UX researchers are a lot more willing to participate in research because they know the pains of conducting their own research. And they tend to be as well, very thoughtful. And it definitely is a big value add um, to the community and to yourself. I see we're running up on time. I want to ask you one question that I ask every guest that joins the show. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario now that. You join a new company and you arrive there and churn and retention is not doing great at this company. And the CEO comes to you and says, hey, Lou, we really need you to turn things around. We have 90 days. You're in charge. The caveat is you're not going to them to me, I'm going to speak to customers and figure out what their pain points are and then start there. You're just going to choose something that you feel or you've seen has been work that has impacted other companies before that's helped reduce churn and retention and run with that playbook. What would you choose?
1: Good Lord. So I can't even look at things like analytic data, analytics data.
2: No,
0: no, no.
1: Okay. So I have to figure out how I'm going to help without any data,
0: <laughs> without
2: yeah.
1: talking to anyone. So I'll fall back on information architecture and I'll say that the hallmark of a strong information architecture and actually more importantly, a flexible information architecture an adaptable information architecture, that it supports multiple paths to content. And I would do something along the lines of thinking about whatever my offering is, whether it's content, application, whatever the product is, I wanna give people alternative means to get in, to engage and not put all my eggs in one basket. And just that statement forces one to think maybe a little more consciously about how people are entering and how they are engaging. And you may have multiple ways, but you may not have thought about them that way. And you may not have contrasted them or compared them. And as you do that, you might start seeing interesting issues like, blockages, barriers, or paths that are too open, that there's not enough. That would be my approach. I'd say let's seriously think about how we are enabling people to access and engage with whatever it is we're doing and look closely at how they move through and uh, maybe open up some new ones if we need them Maybe improve some of the existing ones that might need improvement. So that's the best I can do for you. Very nice.
2: I love that. It got me thinking about another point as well, onboarding and how sometimes people say nobody reads, people just want to watch videos. And I think that's a very bad misjudgment because there's a lot of people that just prefer to read and don't like to watch videos. And like offering two versions to be able to see one or the other like you're just serving more of a wider audience and there's so i think it's different
1: it, ways of learning yeah exactly and I, and I can tell you people do read last, year, <laughs> last book, year we had in the book publishing
2: business exactly yeah but I, I hear this like sometimes you said quite a lot like when you're building products and then people are like, oh, people just want the fastest way or whatever they don't want they don't have time for this did, and it's just not true that's you and that's your opinion that's how you like to consume products and there are other people and other people that like to use them last question then What's one thing that you know about churn and retention today that you wish you knew when you got started uh, with your career?
1: Oh, that's a really tough one. Uh, Because I don't really think in terms of retention that much, but you put me on the spot. So let me think. I think so much of not just retention, but really everything we do that I wish I knew better early on, even though people were trying to tell me all the time is to listen. You're terrible listeners especially those of us who start businesses and, and uh, are, are entrepreneurial in any ways, we fall in love with ideas. And it's so easy to do. We're a creative species. And it's one thing to get reactions to our ideas, but sometimes we, should, we, we would be best served by not even getting that far down the path by listening to the people around us, the people who we may want to reach. And I've spent plenty of time chasing ideas that were a total waste of time and money that if I only would have listened earlier on to the people in my market before I even fully formulated the idea I'd be in much better shape today
2: yeah I hundred percent agree with that it's so easy to get attached and somebody said to me this once and it stuck with me a lot is don't get attached to ideas get attached to the problem mm-hmm. uh, and then like ideas will come and solutions come but if you focus on the problem and you focus on the person you're serving, ultimately you're going to be able to, to build better products and to solve uh, for them. But if you get attached to the idea and you become precious with it, like that's when danger happens. Uh,
1: it's, so, solutioneering is a very dangerous pursuit.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure uh, having you on the show today. Is there any sort of final thoughts you want to leave uh, the listeners with? I think obviously we'll make sure that we have in our show notes all the links to things we discussed today, but is there anything you want to bring up or you want to mention before we drop? I
1: just want to thank you, first of all, for the opportunity. And I'd love to hear from people. That's the only thing I'd say is I'm sure we'll provide my, uh, some contact information for me. And uh, this is a new audience for me to be interacting with. I'm hopeful and I might get to learn something through interacting with your audience somehow.
2: Awesome. Yeah, and definitely I would recommend checking out Rosenfeld Media on Slack. You can check out their sites. It's re- they've got a great community going there as well. And we'll make sure to leave all the, all the links to the different uh, spots for the listeners. Thanks so much, Lou. It's been a pleasure hosting you, today. And I wish you best of luck now going forward on this uh, new venture and seeing how the memberships or subscriptions uh, ends up rolling out.
1: Thanks so much. Maybe we can talk in a couple of years and I can tell you how it turned out.
2: Yeah, so some learnings. Cheers.
1: Take care, Andrew. Thank you again.
0: And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you are able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review, as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.